0: Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 297, Fonda Lee and Zero Boxer.
1: And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing.
0: Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen. I'm flying solo today, and flying is the operative word because today we're joined by guest debut novelist Fonda Lee to talk about her novel Zero Boxer, which is kind of fringe YA. And as part of the core of the discussion, we spend a lot of time chatting about sports and speculative fiction. And even if you're not a sports junkie, I think you'll find some interest in our reflection on sports and how it might embody society and views of society, which is a prominent component to her debut novel, Zero Boxer. So hopefully you'll find some interest in that portion of our discussion You'll certainly want to make your way if you're if you might be a fan of the novel and certainly enjoy sports, and that's something that interests you. You'll you'll definitely want to listen all the way through the interview too, because Fonda throws out an interesting giveaway challenge to our listeners towards the end of the interview. And I'm not gonna, I'll tease it, but I I won't give it away entirely. And you'll Certainly want to get into the interview and, and listen through the interview to hear what the challenge is from Fonda. Some other things that are going on this week, I'm going to keep my comments short, but did want to let folks know, I know Christy and I chatted last time that we're going to have a special guest coming up and Mary Robinette Kowal. We're actually interviewing her in a couple of days to chat about the Hugo Awards and her supporting membership challenge that she has going on. And so we're going to talk to her about the specifics of it. We have a number of other, in my mind, interesting interviews. They're going to be forthcoming. But speaking of the Hugos, if you weren't aware and you are a voting member, membership voting has opened. The voter packets aren't yet available. They won't be available until the end of May or around the ends of, uh, end of May. I think our deadline to get our materials in uh, will be May 10th. But If you are a supporting member, you can go online and vote for those works that you feel like are Hugo worthy or somewhere in the pecking order of being Hugo worthy. So you'll want to take a moment to do that. Also want to remind folks that um, we discussed the Parsec Awards last time and want to remind folks to go out and nominate uh, shows that they find of interest for the Parsec Awards. But with that, I'm going to send you into the interview with Fonda. It was certainly one of the books I've most enjoyed reading, probably over the last 18 months to two years. Part of that has to do with my upbringing and background in sports, and I just thought some of the experiences she translated were so well done in the novel. You'll certainly hear us speak to those things, but hopefully you enjoy the the interview, and if you get the chance to read Zero Boxer, which is really, as Fonda describes it, MMA meets Gattaca— Hopefully, you'll enjoy it as much as I did. All right. Take care, everyone.
2: This episode is brought to you by The Owl and the Japanese Circus by Christy Cherish. Ex-archaeology grad student turned international antiquities thief Alex, better known now as Owl, has one rule. No supernatural jobs, ever. Until she crosses paths with Mr. Kurosawa, a red dragon who owns and runs the Japanese Circus Casino in Las Vegas. He insists Owl retrieve an artifact stolen 3,000 years ago and makes her an offer she can't refuse. He'll get rid of the pack of vampires that want her dead. A dragon is about the only entity on the planet that can deliver on Owl's vampire problem. And let's face it, dragons are known to eat the odd thief. Book one in the series, Owl and the Japanese Circus, is currently available in the U.S. and internationally. And the follow-up, Owl and the City of Angels, is available for pre-order at select venues. To learn more and order online, come to the show notes, episode 297, and click on the image that you will see from Owl and the Japanese Circus by Christy Cherish.
1: Hi, this is Tina Connolly from Toasted Cake, reminding you that podcast nominations are now open for the 10th Annual Parsec Awards. Do you have a favorite podcast? What about a favorite episode from last year? A story that really stuck with you, or a roundtable that was particularly insightful? Well, you can bring a little joy into our humdrum lives by nominating your favorites from 2014. You have until May 31st, and the winners will be announced at DragonCon this September in Atlanta. Find all the details at ParsecAwards.com.
0: This is Brent Bowen. I am so pleased to welcome our next guest. I can't tell you how pleased I am. I absolutely adored this book and can't wait to share this with everyone here. She's a science fiction and fantasy writer for both teens and adults. She's also a longtime avid martial artist in karate and kung fu and has worked for or advised a number of large companies on corporate strategy including a prominent global sports company. I'll let you guys do some research on the internet to figure out which global sports company, unless she brings it up. But what's interesting is that experience all is rolled into her debut novel, Zero Boxer, which was just released. Fonda Lee, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much, Brent. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, great to have you. And I was sharing with you even before we got on how much I absolutely love this book. In a lot of ways, I'm sitting here going, oh, this is the book I wish I would have written. But let's start with Zero Boxer so I can stop squeeing for a second and let everybody else get a sense of it. What can you tell our listeners about it?
1: Well, uh, like you said, Brent, it's my debut novel. It was released two weeks ago from Flux. It's been described as Rocky meets Gattaca or MMA in space. It's about a young man named Carl Luca, and he is battling to make it to the top in the sport of zero-gravity prize-fighting. And he becomes a celebrity figure who is caught up in a brewing interplanetary conflict between Earth and Mars.
0: So the MMA components, I know, were part of your martial arts experience, was part of the inspiration, but, but what really inspired you to write Zero Boxer?
1: Well, I have a deep love for smart action movies. I think action-heavy stories and uh, books sometimes get dismissed as being not very intellectual or, you know, eye candy, but I really enjoy writing stories that are thrilling, but also make you think. And in this regard, I'm pretty heavily influenced by films like Minority Report and The Matrix and Inception and you know movies that are full of great action sequences but have an intelligent premise and offer up moral dilemmas so i wanted to write a book that kind of spoke to these particular sensibilities of lots of thrilling action sequences but also kind of a complex moral undertone and in the case of zero boxer i got the nascent idea for the book while i was working my day job so i'll uh, i'll you know just out myself and say that i spent uh, many years working in corporate strategy and um, was a corporate strategist at Nike. And I walked to work every day passing huge banners of athletes and statues and buildings named after them. And one day in particular, I was in a room with LeBron James. I was working on a project that involved him and he was sitting at a boardroom table and I was one of several Nike individuals around this table. And we were busy showing him marketing plans and the product line. And he was kind of at the head of the table with a few of his members of his entourage and he was sort of sitting back and looking kind of bored and he'd asked for voodoo donuts, which are these famous donuts here in Portland. And so there was a spread of voodoo donuts outside of the conference room. And he kind of perked up a bit. We brought out the mock-ups of his signature shoe and it was, I had this feeling Gosh, this guy is so young and he's barely out of his teens. I think at the time he was maybe 22 years old,
0: early in his first stint with Cleveland.
1: Yeah, it was around that time. Certainly before it was definitely before the the switch to Miami. But I I remember having this sense of wow, like this guy is so young and to have this much money and investment and expectation placed on him is, is pretty astounding. And uh, I started thinking about the idea of celebrity athletes and the role they play in our society. And because martial arts and combat sports are really kind of the only sports I get particularly excited about, I started envisioning a young prize fighter as a character. And how he might end up becoming an individual who came to represent not just a team or a city or a country, but an entire planet at a time in some distant future when Earth is no longer the dominant planet in the solar system. So that's where the idea for Zero Boxer first started.
0: You have me grinning from ear to ear on several different levels. The first of which is I'm as you're describing that moment in your life, I'm sitting there thinking about that trip back to Earth for Car Luca in yeah. the marketing firm showing him the ads of real-time footage. So how much temperament of LeBron James is in Car Luca because there's a fair amount of the book and his personality for Car that figures into the novel. For Carl Lugan, right. any similarities there? My son may actually listen to this interview, depending on your response. <laughs> <laughs> not,
1: uh, not really, insofar as Carl is really a, he's, he's not based on any one particular athlete or, or individual. And I kind of built him off of having read a lot of boxing and MMA memoir as part of the research for this book. And I just kind of had, he just sort of developed in my mind. What I did have in him, I think, is this balance of, you know, wanting to do right by the people in his life. He's still very young. So his, his coach and, you know, Risha, his, his romantic interest and um, his mom, they still play a huge part in his life and his wanting to really live up to the expectations around him, as well as contending with his own ambition at that time in his life um, and being a very competitive athlete. So
0: that's kind of how Carr came to be. Well, let's talk about sports and speculative fiction a little bit. I mean, we're obviously gravitating to that area. And I'm actually going to be on a panel here in a couple weeks where we're going to talk about sports stories and speculative fiction. And aside from Greg Van Eekout, who's another Viable Paradise graduate And there's a short story, a basketball short story he wrote some years back that I absolutely just really am fond of. I have a hard time thinking about sports stories that you see in speculative fiction. And you're right, they're such a component. Sports is such Mm -hmm. a component of our culture. I even think back to, you know, the Harry Potter series and Quidditch and J.K. Rowling seemed to get how much sports, certainly from football and being British understanding how important that was to the culture but are there any sports stories that you can think of in speculative fiction that really stick out to you or that you consider personal favorites?
1: Actually you stole the example that came to mind immediately for me which was Quidditch. I think that is so memorable because Rowling made it so integral to the world she developed. I can't think of any human civilization ever that didn't have sports as Mm -hmm. part of its culture. So if you're a spec fic writer, it just makes a lot of sense that sports would exist in every fictional world, even if it's just in the background somewhere. But I actually started thinking about how a lot of speculative fiction portrays sports in a negative light that is critical of violence and imagines sports as a symptom of societal decay. So the one that came to mind for me was rollerball, which I think started mm. out as a short story in the in the nineteen seventies. Then I thought of Thunderdome and Mad Max, mm-hmm. you know, all the way to the Hunger Games more recently. And in all of those cases, the blood sport became a aspect of some future dystopian society. Yeah, it became kind of this uh this symptom of you know, the decay of humanity and how, you know, now you just kill each other in an arena. And I thought that was interesting because obviously for Zero Boxer created a violent sport, but I don't think if reading it, there's ever any question that I'm, I'm a fan of the sport I created. Uh, So I think actually my portrayal of sports is pretty positive relative to most other examples that I can think of.
0: Yeah, that's a reflection, not only of the way I think you treat the sport, but also the way you treat your protagonist and car he certainly has well he's obviously has some moral dilemma sure to go through but he certainly has a lot of honor in the way he approaches his sport you know i appreciated that positive portrayal of sport being a an active coach of my son in team sports and you see a lot of the positives now this is an individual sport obviously within within zero boxer although you you explore on several different points relationships around community and the support and somebody being in your corner. Let's talk about the sport and the research that you did around mixed martial arts. I know you have a background in martial arts. So how much research did you have to perform for Zero Boxer and how'd you go about doing it?
1: Yeah, I I definitely had a leg up in that I do have a background in traditional Asian martial arts. But I had to do a lot of research into MMA and, and uh, I could visualize the fight scenes, um, but I supplemented kind of the inherent knowledge that I had of um, martial arts with a lot of watching and a lot of reading. So I watched a lot of fights. I went to live fights uh, and watched a lot of UFC. Uh, I read a lot of boxing and MMA memoir because that um, really helped me kind of get into the culture and the mental aspect of the sport and because i was creating a sport that has never obviously occurred and i was trying to envision how things would actually work in zero gravity which was a ton of fun you can imagine me thinking up moves that i've seen or have done myself and trying to imagine doing them floating in space yeah uh, (laughs) three-dimensionally (laughs) <laughs> exactly, yeah, you know, bouncing around off of walls. So I watched a lot of videos of astronauts in space as well. Um, and I even did some research into how you would fight in water because there are military and you know lifeguard training aspects to how you control somebody if they're kind of flailing around in water. And that's sort of a semi-weightless environment. Um, so I kind of melded it all together. And then from there, it was just making stuff up and envisioning how things would work but it was a ton of fun
0: with all that ufc legwork i've been to one live ufc event it was in las vegas probably oh i want to say it was probably seven years ago Mm -hmm. i was i was out there super bowl weekend with some friends it looks like they put ufc fights before the super bowl every year now any classic UFC fights that, that come to mind from all that research? If somebody is able to go back on YouTube and check something out, is there? If they're not squeamish, they can can go right. back and, and go back and watch.
1: <laughs> well, you know, honestly, a lot of the early classic MMA fights, like that happened ten years ago, are kind of boring to watch because they were on the ground so much. And back then the refs didn't stand the fighters back up. So you had these like long stretches where it seemed like nothing was really happening. Um, but when I was doing my research, what I did instead of kind of looking up classic matches was I found fighters that I just love to watch. And especially as a writer, I was trying to get into the idea of the characters and you know what their fighting style is like and what they do. So it was useful to me to find fighters I just love to watch. So I love to watch Georges Saint-Pierre. So I watched a ton of his matches. I love to watch Ronda Rousey, Anderson Silva. I just basically got on YouTube and watched a ton of their matches. So any of those
0: three would be good bets. I've seen Anderson Silva fight. and He was one of the fighters I saw live, if I recall.
1: I am quite jealous.
0: Then. Yes. Well, and I'll tell you later, I wasn't so pleased with the outcome. I was in Vegas after all. he he got the other fighter in a submission with about 15 seconds left and the other fighter had to tap out or I would have left the arena very very wealthy man
1: right right
0: it would have been a good evening so I was highly (laughs) disappointed it was a parlay it was a four-fight parlay so i would gotten every fight up until that one
1: ah you could have spent another two days in Vegas yes
0: Yes. (laughs) or ate really good food this is probably a good segue from betting into why it's such a money making endeavor. And, and a large portion of the book brings on this moral question of performance enhancement. Mm-hmm. And you know, you compare athletes today to those 50 years ago, and you and I had a little bit of uh, chit chat about certain athlete that uh, was engaged in performance enhancement. And it's something that, you know, I even referenced uh, Stephen Curry just a moment ago. The Wall Street Journal, my son actually did a science report on Stephen Curry because the Wall Street Journal broke down his workout in his three-point shot what? and talked about all of the physical training that can be done now, even for hand-eye coordination. He's something else from that standpoint. So in, in your mind, because you explored that within the book, You know, what's too far from an enhancement standpoint?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I'm not sure either I have the question or the answer to that or that anyone else really does because it's such a gray zone. And the reality is there is a huge amount of what you could consider performance enhancement that is legal. And there's a lot that's illegal. And where that line is drawn is, in some respects, arbitrary so for example, coffee is a performance enhancing substance. I mean, I'm a writer. I know that for Uh, a fact.
0: Amen. And
1: there's a lot of science that goes into what athletes have these days in terms of protein supplements and energy supplements and the training that they go through. But, you know, we're all still pretty united on steroids being illegal. So I, I think there is a line drawn somewhere. And at this point i think it can be kind of defined as whether or not you are drastically changing the playing field in terms of what the human body can accomplish so using all sorts of training mechanisms taking you know supplements that boost your body's production of protein i mean those are all sort of in the range of bolstering what your body can naturally do itself um, and, and then when we get into the realm of actual modification to your body using, you know, drugs and so on, that's where people start saying, well, you're now creating a situation in which this sacred value of fairness, which we hold in sports is no longer present. But at the same time, I think that who knows, those standards can change. Maybe in the future, we'll have standards in which, you know, therapeutic nanos are okay, but cyborg parts not okay. okay so it's, sure. it's definitely hard to say. Certainly in my book, those standards differ based on, you know, the sport organization, the culture and the time. So I, I think it's a, it's definitely a, an interesting question, um, one that will no
0: doubt continue to evolve. As you put it, certainly as long as it, probably that defining line is whether it's available to all that are participating in that sport. When you were, you know, we were talking about research just a little a little bit ago, as you were putting the book together, did you encounter any over-the-top or just really interesting real-life stories about uh, performance performance? Enhancement. (laughs) Knowing that you worked for Nike, and we were talking about this before, because you and I share a little bit of a a bond around Lance Armstrong, we won't bring up Lance. But, but any other over-the-top or real-life stories that were just really interesting and said, "Wow, I'm going to take a look at that and consider that as I'm working on the book."
1: Yeah, I mean, the one that's stuck in my mind Mm -hmm. is the story of Oscar Pistorius, Mm. the paraplegic athlete who is you know, more recently known for being a murderer, but before that was the first disabled athlete to compete against able-bodied athletes. And he kind of stuck in my mind because of his prosthetics. So he's, he's essentially a cyborg. And it made me wonder, what if we had a situation in which his paraplegic cyborg legs actually are superior to human legs? And then would that not be an advantage to him? And would he be disqualified from competing against other athletes because his cyborg legs count as a performance enhancing measure? So obviously, that's not an answerable question at this point. But I certainly could envision a future scenario in which it becomes a very real question.
0: Certainly, you look at the enhancements and in robotics. And actually my son and I attended, we had a friend of a friend that was competing in the American Ninja Warrior competition. Are you familiar with yes.
1: this? I have heard of them. Yes.
0: Yeah. And well, my son's a big, uh, big fan and they had a friend that was competing in the competition. It was here in Kansas city and it will be aired. I know shortly my redheaded son will probably be on television because he was uh, right up front, but We actually saw a military veteran that came on with a prosthetic and I looked at it and I said, that looks like a cyborg. The quality of the prosthetic looked like something that he could actually function and use on the course. As he was waiting, we were waiting to see whether he was actually going to use the prosthetic. He actually ultimately ended up taking it off. And trying to do the course with one leg. Oh, he was an amazing athlete. He didn't finish the course, but what an amazing athlete! And um, you know, it was incredible. The heart uh, and commitment to be able to compete at that level and have a real shot at making the course was phenomenal. But yeah, I have the same questions around: Is that if that works like a robotic leg? Is that even fair? So, uh, understand, understand your. Uh, Your thoughts about Oscar. Yeah, what an interesting perspective. One of the other perspectives, and I'll change gears a little bit, that I really enjoyed about the book and hit home for me with my day job was your treatment of the fan interaction.
1: Mm -hmm. And I
0: thought you did an amazing job of capturing the passion and the nonstop inundation of the, so for Carr,
2: you know, he's
0: wearing this wrist cuff and he's getting constant feeds and streams, and you had the brand helm, so you had a handler for him, and the inclusion of social media with these fan-exclusive interviews. How did that contribute to the story, and ultimately, how did you decide to weave those in?
1: Yeah, a couple of different things were at play in mind for me there. One being the role of media and the fans has always been such an inextricable part of sports culture that it just made total sense to me that it would continue to be so indefinitely well into the distant future for as long as we have sports. I extrapolated from what we're very familiar with today and placed it into this science fiction world. And that played a huge part in making the world of Zero Boxer believable and relatable. And I think it just also enhanced all the pressures and the constant expectation Around car and around these athletes, um, because you know, at, at some point, it really is. You start off being um, a professional athlete more for your yourself. I think in terms of you know, it's a passion, and you want to play professionally. And at some point, you are also now representing a, a whole lot of people, whether it's your high school team or you know a city, or if you think about the Olympics for two weeks every couple of years, these people who we have never really even heard of are now carrying the hopes and dreams of our country. So that sort of helped amp up the amount of tension, the pressure cooker situation around Carr. And I think what makes a world really believable in speculative fiction isn't everything that's different but everything that's the same Hmm. and that interaction between Carr and his fans and the media is just so familiar that it didn't matter if it was happening in a space station we
0: recognize it yeah certainly in your story or recollection of the young athlete and making that transition and I know Carr references that in the book several times it was once so simple right right and now you look at those external pressures and fan expectation. I I can recall the big event I was talking to you about where I'm kind of the marketing director for that event is a celebrity golf tournament. And a couple of years ago, Michael Phelps was a participant in the event. And when he finished the 18th hole of the celebrity golf event, you have 50,000 people there that are, and they go explicitly because it's one of the few experiences where you can get extremely close to these athletes. And and interact with them on a personal level. Matter of fact, Michael Phelps and I had a 30-minute conversation on Malcolm Gladwell and Outliers, (laughs) which was really interesting because we talked about the 10,000 hours you need to commit. Right. And he's a true believer. But to watch this young athlete finish the 18th hole, and there was a throng of fans along the gates, and he spent, you want to talk about pressure, they were all expecting something from him. Right, And there were at least a thousand people. And he spent more than 90 minutes signing every autograph he could along the security fence. It was interesting. A couple folks, he said to them, I have a great eye for faces. And he asked them, he said, I want to make sure I accommodate everybody. He said, if I've already given you an autograph and I have a great eye for faces, please step back from the gate. He had obviously been through that rodeo a few times on how to handle those situations. But a lot of that for Carr in the book is new. And I I felt like that rang very true based on some of my personal experiences. So thank you for sharing. I thought that was very well done. Thank you. Yeah, very well done. Well, let's speak about how young Carr is. It's a nice transition because... You know, he starts off the novel at 17, right? Yep. And then I think through, you know, progresses through a couple years. And ostensibly, this is marketed as a YA novel, but you've abandoned a few tropes, which to me was certainly refreshing. But one of the tropes I thought you had a nice little shift on was the romance trope. Matter of fact, I was in my local indie bookstore and they do a YA book club for adults and I've made friends with one of the owners and I was talking to her and she said, have you read anything really good? And, and I was telling her about your book and she asked me about the romance angle and I said, it's not your traditional YA romance. So what were you trying to accomplish? You know, we haven't talked about Risha much, which is yep. the, the brand, his brand helm, Carr's brand helm. Yep. Tell our listeners a little bit about that relationship between Carr and Risha.
1: You're absolutely right. There are things that are not typically YA about this book. Carr's romantic relationship with Risha being one of them. She's an older woman and she's his brand manager. So the dual professional and personal nature of their romance becomes a big part of the story. And there are a couple of things at play here. I wanted Carr's love interest to be someone as prodigiously talented in her own way as he is. And she is essentially responsible for making him the celebrity that he becomes. Plus he has the romantic bond to her. So there's, you know, these multiple reasons for him to not want to let her down. So I I think that contributed to a sense of underlying vulnerability that Carr has of wanting to do right by the people who are really believing in him. And that kind of plays a huge part in his character and impacts his biggest decisions. So that aspect of the romance relationship is different from kind of your typical teenage first love sort of romance that you do find in a number
0: of YA novels. Yeah, it was certainly a very mature relationship in the book in a number of ways. And you talked about decision making. I understand that you had some decisions To make about Zero Boxer in that regard, and you actually encountered some fits and starts when you were working with agents and trying to find a publisher for this book too, because you had abandoned some of those tropes. So what did you encounter when you were trying to sell the novel? I'm so glad somebody fell in love with it, and they could share it with everybody else. Give us a book about sports and spec fiction. But what did you encounter?
1: Yeah, um, it very much goes back to what you were saying earlier about it being a YA novel without some of the typically YA elements to it. Uh, When I was writing it, Like many other authors, I was writing it while getting rejected on something else. And I had written it thinking that it was a YA novel, but, you know, in the upper range of YA. My agent thought so too. And when we went out with it... We had some consternation in that because it did fall into a gray zone between YA and adult, one reason being the relationship between Risha and Carr. And I actually had an editor request that I make Risha a teenager and then create another character to be Carr's brand helm. I just couldn't wrap my brain around that And I really felt like that relationship that he had with her and the fact that she was older and that he had this sense of, you know, wanting to live up to her was important to the story. And the other reason, you know, that it isn't sort of a typically YA novel is that he's a teenager. But like so many professional athletes, his childhood is given over to training. Mm -hmm. So he is basically living and, and making very adult Decisions and choices in his life at a young age, which felt very right to me, having you know been exposed to some of these extremely young athletes, where you know the peak of your career is in your early twenties, that made sense to me. But uh, it wasn't this typical YA ness that you might find, so it 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 sort of fell into that gray zone, and there was a bit of trying to figure out where exactly it fit. And luckily, um, Flux, uh, my editor. Brian ferry Lats at Flux loved it and said, yeah, it kind of falls into that gray zone, but, you know, I'd love it and I'm going to publish it. So it turned out well, um, but it did teach me um, a few things. One being that when you're writing what you want to write, you know, you absolutely should do that. But when it comes to publishing, there are certainly boxes where it can be a little tricky if you don't fall neatly into one of those boxes.
0: You might have to work a little harder to find somebody just the right fit for it. Definitely. The good news is you might be on the front end of a trend. Like I said, I was talking with the bookstore owner. She said, we're looking for more books that don't have that traditional love story from a YA standpoint.
1: I hope she likes the book.
0: (laughs) I do too. Well, we've spoken about something you know about and, and now I'm gonna ask you to be a little bit of a prognosticator. You and I were... We're chatting earlier, and I know you're more of the MMA fan, but we have probably one of the most sought-after boxing matches that I can recall, and I've been a boxing fan since I was a kid, with Floyd Mayweather and and Manny Pacquiao. So are you going to be Team Mayweather, or are you thinking Team Pacquiao on this? And why?
1: I'm Team Pacquiao all the way, and I, I have to tell the story behind it because – He was one of the uh, athletes that came to mind for me when I was creating Zero Boxer. And I remember, you know, reading stories about him kind of rising from very, very humble beginnings. And now he is so much an inspirational figure in his home country of the Philippines that he, I mean, he like literally, you know, has served in the House of Representatives and that the country considers him a national treasure. So his story certainly played a part in the creation of Zero Boxer. So I am team Manny all the way. You know, looking at it objectively, you know, Mayweather's defense and his counterpunching, there's definitely a huge obstacle to overcome there. I mean, he could... Definitely wear Manny down and just knock him out with the right opening. But I'm very hopeful. I mean, Pac Man is super fast and relentless. And, you know, if the stars align, I think he can do it. Um, if he can break the defense. Plus, Mayweather is just such a loathsome human being that I can't, I'm just like go Manny all the way. So, yeah. I, uh, yes.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think you're on par with a lot of folks who have been my heart's in one place, my head may be in another. So, We'll see. We'll see. Well, by the time this interview drops, the outcome will be known. And that's great background and, and information, I think, just even for our listeners about understanding the sensibility of the the character and the backstory, which I think is fabulous. So when I had to set Zero Boxer down, I, I will tell you, because I've seen, you know, you interviewed and you've talked about Zero Boxer for you was, you know, akin to, to having a, a child of yours. And while not on that personal level for me, when I finished it, I will tell you that it was like saying goodbye to a good friend. (laughs) Yeah, that's how much I appreciated the book. But I am anxiously looking forward to maybe what you're working on next. What are you working on?
1: So I I have uh, certainly other irons in the fire. I've got another young adult science fiction novel that is completed and is a manuscript in search of a home and I have two adult novels that I'm working on I have a gangster fantasy and a space opera and they are still both in drafting stages I definitely like I said work in that gray zone between adult and YA so you'll see me move back and forth across that line Uh, so hopefully more books to come
0: well, final question for you, tied to Zero Boxer, because I have to know, and you and I are both Viable Paradise graduates too, so I know somewhere, are they still using the house metaphor? Yes,
1: yes. In, in it, class? okay. Yes, they are.
0: Okay. <laughs> so I know the decision is tucked away somewhere in that little room in your Viable Paradise house. The maniac, is it Matcha? yes. All right, and so we're not going to tell the listeners what this is all about. They're going to have to read the book to find out this isn't really spoiler territory. This would be beyond spoiler territory, but they have to read the novel to understand the context of the question I'm going to ask. So the the maniac matcha, was that dude found guilty or what?
1: So in a perhaps disappointingly accurate reflection of how these things tend to go, the investigation ends inconclusively. And Matcha, he continues to deny any wrongdoing. And, you know, given the whole volatile political situation, the weightless combat championship kind of hems and haws and doesn't really do anything to pronounce him guilty or innocent for some time. But at least when I go into that room in the house, given his character, this isn't the only shady thing that that guy has done in his career. So in my mind, you know, eventually there's another incident a few years later, and at that point one of his cornermen testifies it comes to light that he actually was guilty in the War of the Worlds, and he's suspended at least for a while, but it he, it's not, it's not, doesn't come to light for some time.
0: It doesn't come to light. It takes a larger investigation, and he's not banned from the sport. It's just a, right, just right. a suspension. I,
1: right. I do want to say um and this will be something a little fun the character of bad boy zero boxer Hugo the maniac matcha is inspired by a real life prominent mma fighter so i want to just challenge the listeners to tell me who it is and you know maybe they can put it in the comments or they can you know contact me on my website or tweet at me or something but um if they if they get it right i'll happily Send over some zero boxer fight posters. But I, I would like to know if anyone can figure out who it is.
0: Who it is. Okay. It wasn't the one that just made headlines today.
1: I haven't looked at
2: headlines today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay.
0: okay. Well, we will definitely make that part of the show notes. And <laughs> the hairs in the back of my neck were standing up for how much fun we're going to have with that on Twitter. All right. Before we sign off, I know I've kept you probably close to a good hour on it with our discussion and our pre-discussion. Anything else you'd like to mention to our listeners that I, I may have missed as we've been chatting?
1: No, I mean, it's been a real pleasure. Brent, I just want to say thank you. And I had a ton of fun writing this novel. I mean, I had months of just pretty much making up a zero gravity combat sport mm-hmm. in my head. So I am super happy to share it with people and I hope listeners had fun listening and check it out.
0: Yeah, no, the fight sequences were something to behold. So I think you did Minority Report and The Matrix and a lot of the action films that inspired, the smart action films I know that inspired the book. I certainly saw that reflected in the way you treated those fight sequences. They, they were amazing. So Fonda, I, I, it's been so great to speak with you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thank you, Brent. Thanks so much. Visit Adventures in Sci Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci fi publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast.